Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 175. It's titled, How to Conduct Investment Due Diligence. Topic suggestion came from Paul. He's a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, and he says, he writes, I would greatly appreciate you elaborating on what your approach is when interviewing a financial advisor. It'd be great to hear the things you're looking to find out and a few example questions. Now, there are many times that, well, not many, but some point in your life, you're going to want to do some due diligence on a particular crowdfunding platform perhaps a financial planner, a, a hedge fund. Maybe there's some, Maybe your neighbor or one of your best friends has started a hedge fund. I got an email from another member of Money for the Rest of Us whose best friend started a foreign exchange firm. And he was interested in potentially investing him and sent me the materials. We'll talk a little bit about that today. But There's times that we're presented with some type of financial advisor. Maybe we have a booklet or we meet with them in person. We talk to them, but we need some rules of thumb, heuristics to figure out, is this an appropriate platform or a person to trust my money with? I became an investment advisor when I turned 30. And up to that time, I never had interviewed a, a, I think I interviewed a stockbroker once, but I didn't have any experience interviewing financial advisors, investment managers. But that's what the firm that I joined, a firm called Fund Evaluation Group, that's what they did. We conducted due diligence on investment managers as part of our consulting services to not-for-profits. And we met with hundreds of managers per year, but you have to start with one. And I remember my first manager I interviewed was a firm named Anchor Anchor Capital Advisors. They're still in business. They're based in Boston. They were formed in 1983. It's a value manager. And I met with their, I guess their head salesperson. He came to our offices in Cincinnati He handed me their book, and my job was to conduct due diligence on them, not knowing anything about what I should ask them. I never met an investment manager. All I knew about our firm is we had the three Ps, performance, process, and people. So I asked them about their investment process. How did they go about investing? And he, he had some slides in his book that he could show me. I looked at the performance, and I, I can see they had done fine from what I remember. And then we talked about the people. And that, that was sort of my frame of reference, my heuristic, my rules of thumb, just three Ps. And we also did due diligence on site. The first manager I ever met with was in New York, Oppenheimer Capital. They managed money for one of our clients, and I met with a PM. I don't remember much about it, but I 
you're in your office and it's helpful to visit the prospective advisor in their offices. Just, you're looking for red flags. Is there something that just strikes you as odd? And I'll give you an example in a few minutes of an analyst from our firm and I going to an investment firm. And something just struck us as just odd. But Oppenheimer Capital, all I remember is I had taken a taxi probably 40 blocks down to Wall Street area. And it was rush hour and I was going to take a taxi back. And she said, here, here's a subway token. Go down and take the subway. It's so much faster. And I didn't know. I'd, I'd probably only been in New York. I don't think I'd been in New York before. It's probably my first trip. In episode 170, Our Financial Market Deficiency, I introduced the book by Andrew Lowe called Adaptive Markets. And he talked about heuristics, rules of thumb, and how we develop those rules of thumb based on really bad experiences that, that leave a huge impact on our emotions. And in my early days as an investment advisor, some of the early experiences were defending managers that were underperforming. I had a client in Indiana that I took over from another consultant. And they had hired some small company growth managers. At the very top, the manager's performance was really, really good because their style had really, really been in favor. Later, one of those managers said that this particular university was their worst performing client of all of their clients because their style had been in favor. They performed over the one-year period, the three-year period, the five-year period, and since this exception. But one of the things to recognize with performance track records is very much that last year, if it shows significant outperformance, can significantly impact the longer-term returns, as opposed to, or, or conversely, when a manager's underperformed over the past year, that can impact the three-year return, the five-year return to some extent, and even the 10-year return if the, the underperformance is large enough. But I didn't know that as a new investment advisor. I wanted them to outperform every single year. And you realize when we look at some additional rules of thumb or heuristics, that just, just isn't possible. And I learned that the hard way, sitting there in investment committee meeting after investment committee meeting, defending or explaining why the manager was doing so poorly. So again, so after about a decade, I realized maybe there's something more besides the three Ps. I, I need more specific rules of thumb. So I remember meeting with an investment manager named John McStay in Dallas, Texas, and after the meeting coming up with just jotting down some attributes. What What's some more specific frames of reference for interviewing a manager? What am I looking for to determine whether a manager is skilled or lucky? And so I came up with these attributes that my investment, my former partners still use, and we're going to go through them. And I think these are rules of thumb when you're meeting, when you're looking at a new investment advisor, financial planner, 
Maybe they don't all apply, but a little more specific. And the first is conviction. When you're hiring an active manager, you want them to take active risk. You don't. You can buy an index fund or an exchange-traded fund very cheaply. So why pay a manager a percent or more if they're going to just make little tweaks to the benchmark? Here's how my firm, FEG, my former firm, puts it. Opportunities exist for managers with unique strategies and competencies to add value to a portfolio. Beyond that of a passive representation of the market. Thus, the search for alpha, which is another word for excess return, leads primarily to inefficient markets and unconstrained mandates. Resisting the temptation to constrain managers may provide opportunities for investors who rely upon a skillful manager's knowledge and agility. So if you're hiring an active manager, you're looking for skill. You're looking for their ability. And if they're truly skilled, you don't want to constrain them to a very narrow bucket, nor do you want a manager that has constrained themselves. For example, from Anchor Capital Advisors materials, they say the companies we invest in can be in any industry or market sector. As long as the stock is selling at a price that is attractive to us and has what we believe to be a well-defined path to reach fair value. So they're not constrained to an industry or sector. So they, they, they're unconstrained. And that's why hedge funds often can be an appropriate investment vehicle if, if they're actually skilled because of the unconstrained mandate. Second attribute, consistency. They don't change their style when things aren't going well. Maybe over a long period of time, they make a tweak, but week to week, month to month, they, they stick to how they invest. And I gave an example of that, if you go back to episode 102, on what it takes to be a value manager, of Harris Associates and the Oakmark Fund, where we met with Robert Sanborn. He was a value manager that had significantly underperformed his peers and the benchmark. This was during the internet bubble, so 1999, late 1999. And they changed. They fired them. They fired them. They changed how they invested because they were getting money coming out, I believe, out of their mutual fund. And so they, they weren't consistent. You want managers that are consistent because it takes patience to be a good investment manager. So you want them to consistently applying their skill set. Another attribute, pragmatism. Markets, as we talked about in episode 170, can be very efficient. It can be difficult to outperform the stock market, or even the bond market. And you need managers to understand that, that they're able to clearly delineate what's their edge, what's their informational advantage. Why is the security that they're buying mispriced? 
And how do they know that and nobody else does? Here's how Anchor Capital Advisor puts it. They write, we find value by scrutinizing each company's fundamentals. In a world of indices, ETFs, and high-speed algorithm-driven trading, we determine a company's value by inspecting the infrastructure, examining the books, and asking management the tough questions. From this data, we calculate an actual dollar figure for both the value of the company in the current market and the potential value assuming a new product and management and strategies are successful. So if I was going to interview Anchor today, I would dig into that. How do you do that? How do you get that informational edge? They're pragmatic. They realize there are, there are other products, ETFs. So what are they doing differently? What are they learning as they talk to company management? In, and I would spend a lot of time with managers. In fact, that, I would call. If they say they're doing successful due diligence on companies, I'd call the CFO of one of their holdings. Have you heard of the manager? How do they do it research? And so this is an important component, talking to them, understanding, learning, asking them about mistakes. Where, where have you made mistakes? Give me an example. What you learned from it? Another attribute, investment culture. This is really the people, but how are you instilling into your people the way that you invest? And as you transition and bring up new analysts, I mentioned an analyst and I, we went to a firm, I won't give their name, but they're a mega cap firm in Houston. They're on a recommended list. We hadn't been there in a while. We visited their offices. Most of them were empty. Nobody worked in them. And this was a firm that, as we talked to some of the, the, the portfolio managers, it's just there were some red flags. Lack of people. Lack of just anything really going on. A little bit of defensiveness when we talked to them and asked them about their process. And there was some dispersion among the different client accounts. And so they were just we just weren't comfortable with how the investment culture has evolved. If I was going to meet with Anchor today, they run nine investment strategies. Most of them value, but they have REITs, they have balance, they have a focus. It's a lot of strategies. They their portfolio typically they have 50 to 60 stocks and their portfolio turnover about 15%, which means they're adding maybe seven to 10 stocks per strategy. That, that potentially is a lot of new holdings. And so I would ask them, how, how many analysts do you have and, and how many stocks are they covering? Do they have the capacity and how do you bring up new analysts? So these are investment culture issues. Another attribute is risk management. They can't be blind risk takers. They need to understand what risk are they taking in their portfolio? What controls are in place? Where's the money custodied at? This Forex manager that one of the Plus members mentioned, they're very specific in that Forex accounts, they're not, you don't get a segregated account. 
all their client accounts are lumped together. And then as they work with counterparties, if a counterparty goes bankrupt or doesn't deliver on on the particular trade, that that money's gone. So that that's a risk. So those, these are the type of controls that we need to understand. When you're looking at an investment advisor, do a Google search and put an SEC in the Google search to see, has there been any type of administrative action against the manager? And finally, a final attribute is active return, the performance. What's it been like? Is it too good to be true? Those that conducted due diligence on Bertie Madoff, the performance was just too consistent, too good to be true. And understand what's driving the performance. What, what's the attributes? This 4X manager is, is very, is good in their disclosures in that they, they say that a primary risk is volatility. Forex trading is, tradition, is, a, is traditionally volatile with rapid fluctuations. And such prices are affected by a wide variety of factors that are complex and difficult to predict, including political and economic events, supply and demand, and changes in investor sentiment. They're hard to predict, and they're extremely volatile. And as I look through this performance track record, this Forex manager, they only manage about $175,000. So really, really small. And the performance is only a couple years old. It was two accounts about $16,000 in each account. And the first two years of the one had used leverage. So the, the account was up 139%, but it, it was four times levered what their typical strategy was. It was volatile. It definitely was volatile. Lose 40% in one month and then gain back 16%. So... But that's what you want to look at a record and look at, for example, 2008. If they were managing money then, how did they do? What was that like for them? How did they implement their strategy? What are the fees? I mean, the fees are an important component of performance. Have they backed out the fees? Anchor Capital Advisors, for example, they do managed accounts. And they show gross of fees. They show net of fees. Well, net of fees, pretty much every strategy has underperformed. Then you got to look at the footnotes. And the disclosures say that they have assumed the highest fees of any platform that their managed account program is hosted on, which is 3%. So not every account that uses Anchor is going to be paying 3%, but the most expensive is, and that's what they do, net of fees. It's helpful that the performance track record is audited. I mean, that, that's the gold standard. Is it audited by a third-party accounting firm? And how much ma- money is, is managed with the account? No, in other words, is the track record based on $16,000? So those are the attributes I look for when researching an investment advisor. Conviction consistency, pragmatism, 
investment culture, risk management, and active return. Did they outperform their specific benchmark, at least since inception? It doesn't have to be every period. Most managers are not going to perform every single period. But if you have confidence in their process, their people, their culture, you can actually hire a manager that is underperform in the short term. If you understand why, it's their style out of favor and then benefit as the performance comes back into favor. Now, recently, I looked at a crowdfunding platform. I discussed it on Money for the Rest of Us Plus, and I'm not going to mention the one because they actually called me back because apparently one of the members decided not to invest in the platform after I, I did a second show on them and I had to talk to the platform in person, and they, they weren't real happy about that when they called back. So I won't give the name, but they invest in, they're buying mortgages, deeply discounted mortgages, and then working with the homeowners to get them to stay in the home. And I was actually intrigued by it. I called them up and asked some of these questions to understand their attributes, their their process, and didn't get a good feeling because I they could didn't get when I and I asked them about the consistency of their process or trying to understand their pragmatism. They just just as for example, how, how do you acquire new new loans? The answer was, well, I don't know. I mean, the CEO works on on th- that. And he didn't know. And there wasn't a performance track record to, 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 to analyze. Wouldn't even tell me how much they had under management to see what the, the, later they called back and gave me that information. But you need a ton of information to make your due diligence decision. They should be very, very open about their process, the people. And again, you can use these attributes as a frame of reference. So I didn't invest with this particular strategy. And maybe it's doing very well. They're promising up to 12% return. But I didn't get a good feeling about it because I couldn't get the amount of information that I wanted. Now, these same attributes you could use, maybe tweak them a little bit if you're hiring a financial planner. And a recent member approached me. He gotten a million and a half dollars from a windfall because the company worked for went public. And now he's a millionaire. And he wanted help to figure out, does he have enough to retire? Is he on track to retire? And so he hired a financial planner. And he sent me the copy of the report and asked what I thought about it. And we did I wasn't given advice. This was as part of the general education. This is a weekly plus episode for members, and it's a Q&A show. And so I just shared my thoughts to all the members of what I, what I thought about it. I was really, really disappointed because one of the most important things you can ask a potential financial planner, and I'll share some other things to ask them, is their return assumptions. They're going to do an asset allocation model. They're going to project out what you can earn 
investing to figure out if you have enough to retire. And they're going to recommend a portfolio allocation, so much in stocks and bonds. So the question is, what returns are they using? And that's a, that's a valid question to ask. How do you come up with your returns? And they should be disclosed. And, and advisors will disclose them in the footnote. So that's the first thing I did because I couldn't figure out how the recommend or how the recommended portfolio was going to generate 8% returns. And you look at the footnotes and they had used historical returns. So they're assuming 4.8% for the bond market. That's just not going to happen with yields at 2%, two and a half over the next decade, bonds are not going to return 4.5% to 5%. They're assuming 9.5% to 10.5% for U.S. stocks. With the U.S. stock market valued at a price-to-earnings ratio of well over 20, you're just not going to get 95 to 10%. So you look at the return assumption. And in this case, the analysis essentially was worthless because of the returns that were used. So when, when you're interviewing a financial planner, you want to ask them about the asset allocation assumptions. You want to ask them about their planning philosophy. I was speaking to a PLUS member the other day that's considering transitioning from an attorney to being a financial planner. And we talked about all the different types of financial planners there are. And the type depends on very much their business model. So look at how many clients they have and the average fee their client is paying. So if the average fee is low, they're going to need hundreds of clients to make a business. But if their average fee is higher, they need less clients, in which case they're going to be able to give you more attention. And so when you're looking at a financial planner, you want to understand, you know, what's their business model? How are they compensated? How much are they compensated? What's, what's their philosophy? What promise are they making to you in terms of how are you going to be changed after working with them? Is, is it a, a holistic approach where, yeah, we look at the numbers, but we're primarily there for emotional support, keeping you on track. So understand what it is you're hiring. And you probably should get references and talk to some of their other clients. How's it been working with her or him? And, and, Talk to a number of people because this is going to be a long-term relationship. But find out what their, their philosophy is. What is it that they're promising to do? And what's the relationship going to be like? And make sure that the amount you're paying makes sense. It's going to be a very hands-on relationship. You're going to pay more for that. So that's episode 175. The bottom line is trying to see if there's any red flags. Do you trust them? Look at all the documentation, look at the disclosures, read as much as you can, check SEC reports, meet with them in person, preferably in their office, ask for references, talk to their other clients, perhaps as they're an investment advisor or an investment manager, 
buying individual stocks. I mean, you could ask them, did you want to talk to some of the companies that they invest in? Now, it depends on how much you're going to put with them, but make sure you know what you own and who you own and why you trust them and make sure it's just not too good to be true. Because if it's too good to be true, maybe there's something underneath it that you're just not seeing or picking up on. Show notes are at moneyfortherestofus.com. Why there, sign up for my insider's guide and I'll send you a weekly email with those links and a weekly essay that's not published anywhere else where I share perhaps thoughts on that week's episode or something else that I experienced that week that I wanted to share with you that just didn't fit in the episode. But I try to add as much value as possible in that weekly insider's guide. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I share with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk profile, not provided investment advice. So simply general education on money, investing the economy. Have a great week.